Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Old Dad Jazz Podcast. I'm your host, Matias, and today we have with me Theodore Dalrymple. I never thought I'd have him on the show. He is a very famous, in my book, very famous, very influential a doctor, psychiatrist, and author. And we're going to talk about the degradation of political discourse, uh, especially in the United States and Britain, uh, the importance of culture, and how that plays out in a person's life, and the beautyless architecture that is um, where architecture is not ruled by beauty at all, and that is the last consideration in modern architecture. Shocking. Shocking. And uh, we also, some of the other things we're going to talk about is his experience in North Korea with a young man uh, who loved the work of Charles Dickens and William Shakespeare. And he met him just briefly and uh, North Korean risked his life basically talking to Theodore Dalrymple uh, about the things he loved and those two authors were uh, some of his only joys in life this and much more in this very interesting podcast so sit back relax and enjoy the podcast welcome to the new episode of all that jazz i'm your host matthias or or Matt, um, and I have with me Theodore Dalrymple. And I never thought I'd have Theodore Dalrymple on my podcast. And he's an author of Life at the Bottom, The Worldview of the Underclass, uh, Our Culture, What's Left of It, and uh, many other books. And um, But these are most notable. And Spoiled Rotten is another um, very uh, influential book, I think. And um, he was a doctor, a psychiatrist, um, and now he's most well known as a, I would say, a very influential author and a brilliant thinker. So thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you. I don't think I am very influential, incidentally. <laughs> See, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to exert my will. And, and so you, you'll be influential as, uh, you know, because I feel like your, your work uh, will be more influential as time goes on. Because people find your work and, uh, and uh, they... I think they resonate with it. Like I didn't find your work until I am. Um, I don't know if you know Thomas Sowell. Yes. Yes. So Thomas Sowell has you, and um, he has a section on his website called um, "Suggested Readings," and he's like, "These are the the books. If you want to get grasp basics of something, read this book." So your book, uh, "Life at the Bottom," was on his uh, list because he. Because in his view, the the underclass in Britain has the same exact same attitudes as the underclass in the United States, and in his view, it has nothing to do with race; it has all to do with culture. Yes, that, that, that's why he liked the book, of course, yes. because uh, it, it bore out what he had always thought. But do you do you not think it's true? Do you think he was just like confirming what he believes? Do you you must believe? Oh, no, that no. It's true. I mean, well, obviously, I believe that uh, that it's true. What I wrote was true, um, and uh, so uh, obviously he thought it was true as well. Um, 
uh, and it uh, it reflected a reality in the United States which it was very difficult to express in the United States because of a fear of accusation of racism and other things. Yes, um, I've had a guest on. Although, of course, Thomas Sowell is himself black and the uh, and had a, a difficult life in Georgia, so he knows all about uh, life at the bottom. Um, I've had a um, black guest on the show, Danielle, and she told me that even though she's black, some um, because she's conservative, you see, uh, some uh, some white liberals will call her the N word. They will call her white supremacist because she has right wing ideas. So it seems um, sometimes on the... Yes, conservative ideas rather than right-wing, perhaps. Yes, okay, well, let, let's, uh, let's say that. And then yeah. she would be attacked and called uh, all sorts of names because they, they feel justified. You don't have the right idea. Well, well I, um, I was very pleased. My books have been translated into Portuguese and uh, have sold reasonably well in Brazil. And I gave a talk in Brazil uh, and I was very pleased when uh, uh, people came to buy the books. It's the only place in the world where young people rather than old people have bought my books. Uh, and, Why is and that? I was, uh, that I can't tell you. Uh, but anyway, they, it was young people who bought my books and there were a lot of them. And I was very pleased when uh, someone said, I grew up in the favelas, the, the slums of uh, Sao Paulo. Um, and he said, I recognize all that you say. So it's an international phenomenon. It's not a phenomenon uh, confined to England, though it's possibly worse in England than in other European countries. Right. Um, why is it worse in England or in UK in general? I'm not quite sure. I think it might be have something to do with the uh, the general loss of the importance of the country, the dramatic loss of power and importance of the country. It's now uh, no more no more important in the world really than Belgium and um, and this uh, undermined any sense of being in a project larger than oneself so that all that was left was um, individual uh, liberty in the most in the most um, shall we say um, gross uh, and destructive way. So you would be saying that uh, the empire, the British empire in some sense, not just, I wouldn't say just the empire, but the, the values that it had and somehow um, held the country together more than now. I, I think, um, I don't know about how, I wouldn't say that it held it together directly in any way, but the fact is that you, if you feel that you're, in an important country, uh, a country that is of world significance, you do actually feel something of that rubbing on onto yourself. And one of the things that's happening in America, of course, is the realization that the United States is no longer um, the only or most important country in the world. Yeah, I think um, there there are several factors to this as well, because I've been following U.S. politics for a while and the degradation of discourse just in the past yes, 10 terrible. years is 
Yeah, but I think it's a similar. Uh, there's parallels in UK, maybe, but in US is is the most striking example, and that of course influences the whole Western world. You see. Yes. Well, I, I mean, certainly, uh, I'm surprised actually at the degradation of the discourse on all sides. I mean, it's not just one side or the other. It's everyone is speaks in the most hideously vulgar terms. They very rarely address each other's arguments in any uh, rational way. Insult is the highest form of argument, in fact. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, yeah, of course, it's it, 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 the same exists in this country. Uh, so, uh, and you have only to look at, for example, at the commentary after a newspaper article is published uh, to see the the level of uh, hatred and bile um, that people express, possibly because they're able to express it now, but I don't know whether the ability to express it has actually brought it forth has created it or whether it was always there waiting to come out. I rather think that the ability to express it increases it. So, um, but anyway, uh, uh, the good thing for an author is that before long, the people who are commenting on your article are attacking not you, but each other and uh, wishing each other dead and uh, all kinds of things. It's awful, it's horrible to see. So uh, with your work, uh, did you ever uh, get uh, threats and stuff? Because you, you are exposing a certain um, um, downside of the left, uh, the lowering of standards of schools and things like that that are not... No, so I per yes. Personally, I've never, at least, I, I don't think I've ever suffered anything like that. Not, not, not that I'm aware of. I don't do Twitter and I don't do Facebook or anything like that. So for all I know, 20 million people are, are writing terrible things about me. But since I don't look at it, I don't know. But I've never really suffered uh, anything very, uh, very unpleasant. Part of, part of it is because... Uh, people who might might have been expected to attack me didn't attack me because they thought, well, as a doctor who's actually working, he's just reporting what he's seeing, mm -hmm. uh, they couldn't very well say, well, it doesn't exist because they have no contact with it. They don't know that it exists even, although they could easily if they wanted to. So that, for example, when I was in France, I went to the, uh, uh, the Bonlieu, of Paris, which is like a slow-burning civil war, uh, at, but in the centre of Paris, with the people I know there, um, they wouldn't know that it exists. Oh, they, they mean the 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 precincts just around Paris, right? Paris, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've heard of that, but I never when I was there, but I never went to visit there because I was um, uh, I lived there. Um, uh, there was a station near Roosevelt. I think I lived near that station. There was a Catholic yeah. hostel, and uh, I, but, so I lived in the eighth arrondissement, which is like one of the, you know the fancy. The, the, yes, yeah. well, you don't see these problems there, and uh, so there's a kind of uh, geographical separation. Actually, a much greater geographical separation than in Britain. So uh, it actually reminds me uh, of rather of South Africa, where I live. France reminds me a bit of South Africa because you, you have these uh, townships, as they would have been called in South Africa, where the black 
poor poor black people lived and they were completely separated from the center of the town. They came into the center of the town to work, of course, but, but they lived elsewhere. And if the government decided to turn off the trains and uh, block the one road with a, with a tank or an armored car, that was it. They were isolated from the center of the city. Well, you get that feeling very much in, uh, in um, France, except, of course, that uh, the relative populations, the, the proportions of the population are the reverse. So that in France, uh, the the poor people are the minority in South Africa they were the majority but it okay. did remind me very much and my one my one accurate political prediction it was the only one I really I've ever made that was a, in any sense unusual and normally I get everything wrong um, was that if the government during after the riots of 2005 you're probably too young to remember them but there were riots throughout France in the township in the cities in the banlieue in France in 2005 not a single one occurred in any the center of any town it was all in the periphery and I said that if the government decided to try and loosen the labor regulations in France uh, such that it would be easier for the unemployed people outside the cities to gain employment, there would be riots on the Boulevard Saint-Germain. And that's exactly what happened. And people were a bit annoyed because I said it, it reminded me all of... Um, uh, the Witwatersrand in South Africa in 1922, when the mine owners wanted to introduce black labor into the mines, not because they like blacks, but because of course it was a lot cheaper than having white, white labor. Well, hold on, so, so they, um, they wanted to make a law that made it easier for people outside the boroughs to work in Paris. Yes, to, redu to reduce the, the, the regulation so that, it would, so that it would be easier to hire and also of course to fire people. Oh, I uh, because see. So, okay. so because they thought that one of the drivers of the um, of the riots was unemployment, because in some of these uh, banlieues uh, there was at least fifty percent fifty percent unemployment, and probably amongst the young people seventy five percent unemployment. Mm -hmm. Well, in, as I said, in South Africa uh, in nineteen twenty two, the mine the mine owners wanted to reduce the barriers to uh, black miners working in the mines and the communist party of south africa had a slogan it's, uh, and the slogan was workers of the world unite for a white south africa <laughs> so it was it was economically detrimental plus racist <laughs> <laughs> Well, it wasn't, the plan was that probably was detrimental to us, unfortunately, to a certain class of white miner. I mean, uh, it was true. What, in a sense, what, uh, what was being said was true, that the white miners would lose their jobs and they would be worse off for it. Right, right, and this right. is this is true of the rioters on the Boulevard Saint Germain. They they all had jobs, so they wanted to preserve their jobs from any possible competition. Wow, um, 
So they didn't want um, somebody else to, to come in and uh, take their jobs because they... Well, they didn't want any, they didn't want any reduction in the, um, in the lab, the laws that protect labor once you have a job. Right. Once you have a it's job, like, you're... Yeah, like unions, like, and once you're in, you're fine. Yeah, union, yeah. yeah. If yeah, you're, yeah. if you're, if you're in, in, within, it's good for you. If you're not in, then it's bad for you. And you have to really, you have to make a choice about who you're going to uh, assist. I don't know if you realize, but Thomas Sowell has always mentioned uh, the minimum wage in US as the most anti-black um, uh, law on the book, because once they raised minimum wage, started to raise increasingly in the 50s, because Thomas Sowell grew up, uh, he was born in 1930. So he, he remembers when he was 16, 17, the minimum wage was existent, but it was so low, it was negligible. Like everybody could get a job that was higher than minimum wage. So the, the unemployment of young, young blacks, even during the uh, economic segregation, they couldn't go to college and anything, was really low. The unemployment was really low. But when they raised the, the minimum wage, the, un, uh, the unemployment of blacks just skyrocketed and... Uh, I don't think he's ever really recovered since then. And, um, but they since had the 1965, the civil rights uh, laws and stuff like that. But, that. but then that was coupled with some left-wing ideas that uh, didn't seem to help and actually hurt the blacks even more. So like um, uh, yeah. encouraging single motherhood. I think that's also in, in Britain as well, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very, it's, 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 it's very, uh, very similar. And, uh, um, and, and the impulse from it, impulse for it, I should say, came from the intelligentsia. It didn't come from below. There weren't people from below demanding these changes in the law. It came from intellectuals and the governing classes from above. Yeah, there, there was, there's a classic YouTube video of... Uh, so arguing with uh, Francis Fox Piven, which is a famous sociologist from Canada. And uh, she was said, uh, Francis was saying that black people say this and black people say this. And, and Thomas Sowell quipped, well, like most people, I have never seen a pollster. <laughs> and the, <laughs> yes. audience, the audience just roared in laughter, you know. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I mean, I think the question about uh, the minimum wage is, is a technical um, economic one. And I think uh, there are economists who say that it doesn't actually reduce uh, employment, but, uh, and so I'm not really qualified to comment on that. Yeah, that, that's but, fair, that's fair. Um, I want to go um, to your, um, what was your intellectual background? Um, Cause- uh, uh, Well, I, I have no intellectual background except that I was a doctor and uh, obviously I trained as a doctor. Uh, but I was always interested in reading, and uh, um, I think that's um, now become a rather minority interest. But at the time, <laughs> at the time, it was fairly common. So we used to, dis you know, I and my friends used to discuss a lot of things. So, um, and of course, I am just old enough to remember 1968, which had a tremendous uh, effect. Um, uh, I have always thought that uh, 1968 was the the revolt of spoiled brats. Um, right. That's how one can best uh, think of it. 
um, uh, who incidentally are now in control or have recently been in control of society. The spoiled brats became the governor, governors and are now themselves being overthrown by other spoiled brats. <laughs> so, <laughs> even, but the new spoiled brats are even more radical than the old ones. So it keeps Yes, they've they probably actually got more to complain of uh, in the sense that uh, life in the future is going to be perhaps in some ways more difficult for them than it was for the 1968 spoiled brats. Um, uh, the outlook doesn't look terribly uh, good for them, at least for those whose parents are uh, not well off enough to be able to buy them a house and do all the other things that parents might do. So, so actually what's happened is that a class society has become a, is, seems to be becoming a caste society. Did, did you already work as a doctor starting in the, in the 70s, like uh, 1970s? In the, uh, 70, well, 74, yeah, 74 okay. I started. Because okay. um, I went to um, this one-year um, college program in Scotland, and one of the books that they mentioned in sociology was Learning Through Labor, and it's a sociological study of uh, these boys in England. Um, I think it was close to Birmingham, I'm not sure. By, this is a book by Paul Willis, 1977, yeah. And it's titled How Working Class Kids Get Working Class Jobs. But it, it's um, written by Marxists. So it was blaming um, the system, as it were, on how the kids were. But uh, my thinking was, it's probably, if you did a study in 1967, it'd probably look a lot different. Because the kids they studied was like the lowest, like maybe what you would call in that book, the underclass. Because they were like, um, they were not studying. The, the, the school were prim permissive. They were... Um, skipping class but the teacher couldn't do anything they were restricted um so these kids and the parents really didn't do anything the parents were like well just you know they're just having a laugh you know this that was the highest priority having a laugh and getting away with things and they're testing the teachers how far can they get away with things you know yeah. but i'm thinking this happened in 1960 1967 they'd get um they get probably slapped in school or something i don't know it'd be probably very different in those 10 years. Well, uh, yes. I mean, I think the, the important thing to remember is uh, that uh, actually what is, what, what uh, uh, decides a person's fate in life is largely what is going on in his mind, at least in a, a tolerably open society. Now, of course, the argument of the Marxists would be that this is not an open society, uh, that you are, you're destined to stay where you're born uh, and, and you're destined because of unfairness and uh, injustice. However, uh, uh, The Guardian and other newspapers uh, published a very interesting article some time ago about the wealth, household wealth in this country broken down uh, not by job or educational standard or anything like that, but by religious affiliation. And it was extremely interesting because the richest two groups by religious affiliation were Jews and Sikhs. Mm. And the history of both groups is more or less the same, namely that they arrived in the country that weren't entirely, I mean, there was, of course, a gap of 60, 70 years between the arrival. Uh, but neither was... Uh, extremely welcome by the local population. 
uh, but there were, neither was there any um, legal discrimination against them. So uh, there was no reason why they couldn't, uh, no legal reason why they couldn't ascend the social scale. And within a very few years, they went from being uh, impoverished to being the richest groups in the country. And this seemed, and now unless you want to argue that there's some Jewish or Sikh conspiracy, which is, no. <laughs> which is, which is preventing other people from doing the same, um, you would have to say, well, then what is important is something about these people's culture. And what is important, I mean, the most obvious things to me are their attitudes to education, also to work, and probably uh, to family structure. Um, and, and therefore, I had a debate with, uh, I don't know whether you know Polly Toynbee. Have you heard of Polly Toynbee, who re no, write, reads in The Guardian? You don't read The Guardian? Uh, no, not, not particularly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I try well, to avoid I think, it. I try to I think avoid you, it. I think, I think you should. <laughs> okay. <think> you should. <laughs> anyway, um, Polly Toynbee is a famous um, liberal leftish um, um, columnist, journalist in The Guardian. And we had a debate about this. And she said, to me when I mentioned these facts, she said, well, what you have to remember is that um, that uh, immigrants are often uh, people who are ambitious and hardworking. I said, yes, that, but that's precisely my point. <laughs> that's what's important. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and if you have a culture uh, in which there is no ambition, in which far from being ambitious, you want to cut down anybody who's ambitious in any sense whatsoever, uh, then, um, then of course that group is not going to uh, get very far. And I remembered a, a case, I worked in a, a very poor area where most of the patients were pretty poor. And I remember a girl, she was about 16 or 17, she came to me and, um, uh, and I was talking about her, and uh, she lived in a, a council housing estate where, you know, there's the usual crime and drugs and everything like that. And what she wanted to do was to study French literature, which is a rather extraordinary thing for someone from that background to want to do. Mm. I, I don't know how she 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 decided it but she she had decided it and i thought this was very meritorious uh, and she said and what she said was that the other girls in her class said of her that she's stupid because she's clever <laughs> that that's just um, amazing statement Postmodernism well, in one sentence right there <laughs> well, it's uh, i mean it sums up a, a, a culture and if you have a culture in which you regard anybody who's clever as stupid, then it's unlikely that you're going to succeed very much in life. Yes, um, uh, I do, it reminds me of uh, there's a famous uh, basketball player, Chris Paul, who would say, who would say to that kind of attitude, "Why would you want to be stupid?" Like you know, as a retort back, but he's pretty. Uh, <laughs> um, but 
but he's pretty tough nosed person. So he, he's able to stand up for himself and he had good parenting. A lot of, a lot of times uh, these black youth in the United States don't have both parents. So that's harder, but he had, he not only had parents, he had great grandparents who were also helping him. So, um, so it seems like, um, in a lot of ways, because of the degradation of family, just like in the United States, just like in Britain, that that is somehow influencing the rest of society, the cohesion of society, let's say. Because um, I would say when you're a kid, like later on, maybe you can mentally, you can uh, you can still do a lot of things. It's particularly now uh, in the age of... Um, online learning and you can do a lot with with very little money you can do learn a lot but um it's hard to overcome the 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 trauma of like one um one person parenting single parents and and the uh the harshness that can come from with that yeah. well yeah. Uh, yes i, I mean what you have to remember is that if you make generalizations about large numbers of people huge numbers of people there will always be exceptions like Yes. This, yes. This girl was obviously exceptional in some way, um, but uh, her, but the, the, the local culture, if you like, instead of making it easier for her to be like that, made it much more difficult for her, and actually distressed her, because she didn't like to be the, the odd. I was going to say odd man out. I suppose I should say the odd girl out. Yes. She didn't want to be the odd girl out. Um, uh, and you have to be, and you shouldn't have to be exceptionally strong uh, to pursue a constructive path through life. Mm. Um, okay, so um, when you started your practice, before you started your practice, did you expect that you're going to encounter so much negativity or was this somehow forewarned to you? No, I mean, what really changed me was going to Africa. Um, and in fact, I spent a fair, a fair bit of time in Africa. I once, for example, crossed Africa by public transport from Zanzibar to Timbuktu, which took me about six months. Mm. And I observed uh, uh, the poverty there, which, of course, was you know, incomparably greater than uh, poverty in England. But there was a certain way in which uh, the Africans, it struck me anyway, were, were less impoverished than the people in Britain that I've talked about. And that is that they had some kind of dignity uh, uh, and so on, uh, mainly perhaps because um, survival was an achievement there, which it isn't in Europe, I mean, there's no achievement to survival here. You, you can't not survive, you've no choice but to survive. But there it really was a bit of an achievement uh, for many of them. Uh, but they were not, um, they were also refined in many ways. They were not uh, vulgar. Um, and uh, they had, uh, in many places, they, in most places, they had excellent manners. So the equation of poverty and bad manners or vulgarity is simply false. So it's culture. It's mostly culture. It, it's culture, yeah. Hmm. Um, do you think of the uh, uh, leniency of the police um, uh, because of the intelligentsia and thinking crime is something that we can 
rehabilitate. Um, there's a classic joke, um, and it's not a joke actually, it's a true story from the 1980s in New York where there was this lenient judge and he was, uh, he was getting everybody scot-free, like uh, yeah, giving an, everybody another chance and everybody just um, very lenient judge. And one day this judge gets mugged and he and takes a week off work and then he, he comes back to work and um, he makes it a point to start with a with, um, statement. And everybody's quiet and he's like, I know all of you have heard uh, what happened because it was all in the papers, you know, in New York. And, uh, and he says, but I want to, want to let you know that this, what happened, will in no way, shape or form change the way I judge. And he let the silence sink into what he said. And somebody from the back of the courtroom yelled, mug him again. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, it wasn't enough. It, one wasn't enough. He should. <laughs> yes. And uh, it seems like um, sometimes a liberal is uh, is one that was no a conservative is one is a previous liberal that was mugged by reality, uh, yes. as it were. Is um, so the leniency I think is the problem um, because well, yeah. yeah yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, with the question, the first thing to say about crime, of course, is you never eradicate crime completely. There's no society in which is eradicated completely. The second thing is to remember the distinction between what prevents people from becoming uh, criminals in the first place and what you do once they have become criminals. These are overlapping questions, but they're not absolutely identical. So that, uh, and no one really wants a society in which people behave in a law-abiding and decent way only because there's a policeman around the, around the next tree who will grab you uh, if you don't behave well and uh, you get sent to uh, some terrible prison. And no one wants a society like that. that that's China. Uh, <laughs> Almost. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I can give a story about that, right. uh, yes. Uh, yes, so we don't want that. On the other hand, uh, there is no question that uh, uh, the failure of our police is in a kind of dialectical relationship with the, the extreme leniency of the court. And uh, it's not just a question of a few anecdotes. I mean, there are always anecdotes in the, in the uh, press about how somebody who's committed 27 violent crimes has gone on to kill somebody. And everyone asks, well, why, why was this person at liberty? But th these are, and, and if you bring forward that, that uh, case, then people say, oh, well, that's just an anecdote. But an anecdote that can be repeated a thousand times is, or a hundred thousand times is not just an anecdote anymore. Mm -hmm. And the statistics are pretty clear. And if, for example, you look at, I mean, you look at some of the cases and the, and the leniency with regard to killing people, for example, even culpable homicide, if, if, you, if you give lenient sentences, uh, to those people, and I can give cases where that is the case, that has been done, then you exert a downward pressure on all other sentences because you obviously the the punishment has to some extent to be roughly proportional to the seriousness of the crime. 
So if, let, let me give you, uh, this is a terrible case. The, the man did actually get a life sentence, but a life sentence in this country does not mean uh, staying in prison for life. This was a man, I don't know, you probably don't remember, a man called Shane Jenkin, a terrible man who had come out of prison after kicking someone in the head and, and um, uh, giving him brain damage, permanent brain damage. And he came out of prison and fell in with, a, he was a great big chap, muscular, strong, and so on, and um, <clears throat> uh, fell in with a rather foolish woman who had two children, of course, by two previous relationships. Mm. She found him very attractive because he was muscular and strong. Uh, she, she wrote a book afterwards. She said that, you know, when she, when he, got undressed for the first time, she saw his tattoos, one of which was a man ripping off somebody else's head or something, something appalling like that. And she just thought it was funny. You know, even though the man had just come out of prison after four years. Anyway, mm. to cut a long story short, after many episodes of violence towards her, in which she, uh, she withdrew the charges against him, um, he uh, put out her eyes with his bare finger. He got her drunk and drugged her. Mm. Now, I think if you ask the population what should happen to this man, uh, I think almost everyone would say that this man should go to prison and there should be absolutely no possibility of him ever coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even if he were to live to be 150, uh, no possibility of him coming out because, well, I don't have to say why. I mean, it's obvious. Anyway, he will be out of prison probably in six years' time. Hmm. And he'll still be a young enough uh, to be aggressive and uh, violent. Now, and, if, um... if, you give it, if a man like that goes to prison for six years... Mm -hmm. What do you do about a burglar who just yeah. breaks into your house and steals a few things? Give but actually, <laughs> uh, yeah. no, I, do you know how, I worked it out, how much a burglar, um, how much time a burglar could expect per burglary to spend in prison. And it's about three days. Wow. So any, if you look at the statistics of the sentences, the percentage of burglars, who get caught and so on. And most of the burglars who get caught, I think want to be caught anyway, because uh, that's the only way the police will ever catch anybody. Um, uh, so anyway, it's about three days. So the question is not why there are so many burglars, but why there, there are so few, because if man were just an economic organism, Everyone should be burgling because surely you can take in a burglary more than three days labor will earn you. But do they, uh, do they take away the, um, uh, do they retrieve back the stuff they stolen always or sometimes, no? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Depends. And it doesn't matter. You still get the three days and that's it. No, you still get the same. Uh, yeah. It's, I think they're, well, they, they, I, I had a burglar. I had a, I looked in a, a burglar after 57 convictions, 57 convictions. Now, the conviction rate is about less than one in 10 of all offences. 
this person had probably uh, committed 500 offences. He got a £50 fine. After the 57th time, £50 fine. After, after the 57th time, and this was for a burglary. Did, but did they take? A, did they retrieve back the things he stole? Well, he probably didn't steal anything worth taking, actually. But uh, because actually many burglars are not very clever, and uh, uh, I can see. <laughs> and, uh, and and the other thing, the other thing that liberals do not seem to be able to understand is that the principal uh, victims of crime. They are the poor themselves. So if it's true that most criminals are, are poor or of the poorer background, um, it's also true that their victims are of the poor or poorer background. Yes. And therefore, if you don't incapacitate uh, uh, the criminals properly, what you're doing is creating more poor victims. I'm very unlikely to be the victim of a serious crime. So but if actually, I, wow. But if I, yeah, if I were living in a terrible housing estate, I would be likely to be the victim of a terrible crime because I'd be vulnerable. I'm now 70, so I would be uh, vulnerable. So I'd be much more likely. Uh, but this is something, this is so obvious uh, and yet nobody seems to be able to grasp the significance of it. So that when they think of the police as being the enemies of the poor, they forget that the police are actually, or should be, the first line of defense of the poor. And they are. But uh, they get twisted. Well, well much less than they should be. Right. So... Um, I mean... Uh, I mean, they, they, for example, will not uh, take a, a burglary in a poor area seriously. Well, they won't even in a rich area. What do you think about the... Um, it started in the US, maybe. I don't know if it's in the, in Britain now, but the, the whole defund the police movement because of Black Lives Matter, the racism, all that. It just mm. seems... I, I couldn't fandom... Um, a phantom, a more dangerous idea than just get away with with police and putting some social workers as if they are the saviors, the angels yes. that are going to organize society well, yes. for us. Yes. Well, it reminds, it reminds, there was a cartoon, I think it was probably in Punch years ago, and uh, it's about the Good Samaritan and the, uh, there's someone lying in the street, injured, obviously being attacked. And the social worker says to another, the people who did that obviously need help. <laughs> <laughs> what about the guy lying there? Who's going to protect the guy? <laughs> so it's almost like, uh, it's almost pathological. I don't know. You're, you're the doctor or psychiatrist. What, what is about the people that are like uh, making excuses all day long for, for criminals that are obviously... I would say with liberty, some of them are evil, like uh, like Shane, the guy you described, obviously evil. W what is it about people? Well, the, the first thing to say is that, pe I mean, I'm glad to say that people like uh, Shane Jenkin are, are not, even now, they're not very common. Most criminals are, most of the people I saw were not evil in that, in that sense. Um, uh, 
So uh, I think we should say uh, Shane Jenkins of this world are not uh, very many. The problem, as I said, is that the leniency towards them uh, exerts a pressure towards leniency for everybody else. Um, now, why, you ask, why do people not see these evident truths? Yeah. Or seem to me pretty evident truths. Uh, and I think it comes from a desire uh, first of all, it's because too many people are intellectuals now. And, the, and to be intellectual, you have to deny the obvious because there's no point, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no point in being an intellectual if you don't deny the obvious. So it's uh, the idea first, not the facts. First is the, the oh, yes, assumptions. Absolutely. The and, assumptions are and paramount. Then, yeah, mm. Nobody ever really gets much kudos uh, is regarded as a good person uh, because he wants to be reasonably hard on crime. No, I mean, nobody. So that, for example, if you take, and this is going back a very long time, if you take, for example, uh, Victor Hugo's uh, book about the last 24 hours of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the condemned man, the 24 hours before he's guillotined. Mm. And it's a very good book. Uh, but nowhere do we learn what this man has actually done to deserve being guillotined. And this is, I mean, this is so whether or not you, you agree with the death penalty. I don't really agree with the death penalty, mm -hmm. but mainly because there are mistakes made and they, they execute uh, innocent people. Um, but... Um, but the dice in the story are loaded in favor of sympathy for the man who's done something. And we don't know what the man has done. Maybe he's cooked and eaten uh, his family. The same is true, incidentally, of the Ballad of Reading Jail, uh, which is a very good poem. It's a very moving poem. But we don't ask, well, what's this man actually done? And, and, and it's known what he did. He was extremely uh, a violent, uh, jealous man who killed his girlfriend brutally. But that is not part of the poem. So our emotions are manipulated in one direction only. Yes, to be sympathetic towards the, the evil guy that did something bad, but we are supposed to be and then, of oh. course, there's a, yeah, the Dostoevskian, yeah. the Dostoevskian uh, view that the the greater the sinner, the greater the saint. Uh, but there, but there are some sins that um, that are so great that 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 we I won't say forgive because I have no locus to forgive. Uh, supposing someone comes and kills your girlfriend, I can't forgive him. And actually, neither can you. Uh, uh, the person who suffered is who suffered the most is, of course, the murdered person. It's not you can so third parties can exert mercy, and mercy is a it's a value, but it's not forgiveness. And these two things are often mixed up. Anyway, the the point is that that most intellectuals, their life naturally enough is with other intellectuals 
and they therefore want to see seem uh, good and understanding and generous-hearted and uh, not uh, prejudiced, uh, not censorious in the eyes of other intellectuals. So they don't really, they don't actually care what happens on the ground. Would you agree that a lot of intellectuals are very high on intellect? They're very smart, but uh, they're, they're very low on wisdom because the, the Jordan Peterson proposes the idea that the two are not correlated at all. So some can have very high intellect, but their wisdom is almost non-existent. Whereas uh, I'm for sure familiar with the movie Forrest Gump. The character mm. had uh, almost no intelligence, but very high in wisdom. Like, uh, you know, um, just amazing uh, character-wise, but no intellect, yeah. you know. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, d I don't want to sound too intellectual, uh, anti-intellectual, because, of course, I suppose in a way I'm an intellectual myself. So, um, uh, uh, but there is certainly a tendency of people. You need a certain... Um, a certain level of education uh, and sophistication to believe the most idiotic things. But do you, I mean, you were can't um... you can't, for, uh, just look at the the the, um, the uh, record of Western intellectuals with regard to the Soviet Union. It supporting wasn't it, it, supporting it. Yeah, <laughs> supporting it, and it's not true that the information wasn't available. It was available from the very beginning. I've got a collection, quite a large collection of books about the Soviet Union, published in the nineteen well, actually published from about nineteen eighteen, all to the Second World I'm War. I'm sorry. Can you can you uh, be a little back so we can hear, see your face? Yeah. yeah. There we go. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, as, um, uh, from 1918 to the second uh, to the beginning of the Second World War, and everything was known. Everything was known. The, the size of the camps, uh, the famines. It was all the persecution of religious people and others. It was all perfectly well known. It was just that nobody wanted to believe it. They wanted to believe it. They want. It's like an honor faith. It's like intellectualism became uh, because most of these people are without religion, but they, they place their faith in something that is not entirely positive in an ideology, especially communism that uh, produced negative results objectively. And, uh, and, but still as an intellectual, you have to be intellectual to, to say, Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't bad or it wasn't real Marxism. It was just something about implementation that was just wrong. You know, yes. uh, it reminds me of an old Soviet joke where one asked the other, is this full communism? Is this is this it? And the guy says, the other guy says, "Well, no. Things are gonna get a lot worse." <laughs> That's, uh, yes. Yes. Uh, Ronald Reagan used to collect Soviet jokes, so that's where I, I got it from. Yes. Uh, well, there are a lot of very good ones. Yes. I mean, uh, that was one. That was one thing in which they were very good. At, <laughs> or <laughs> very good jokes they had. Yeah. Yes, and, and economically it was a disaster. They would, they would, um, they would uh, for example, I read in a soul book that they would lie between the supplier would uh, would say that he needs more, and the, the other guy would have to guess how much the other guy was overestimating. And it was all these, you know, because each uh, yes. position has this incentive, but you can't lie too much or you get executed or sent to Siberia. So it's like, 
It's well, I suppose uh, actually the the again the surprising thing was that anything was produced. Yes. Not that that was what was surprising. Not that it didn't produce very well. But I think they had to, otherwise they'd, they'd be killed. They knew they they were they had their neck on the line, so they had to produce something. Yes. On the other hand, people were killed pretty much um, uh, randomly. So yes. often there wasn't much you could, you couldn't predict what very clearly what was going to happen to him. No, I think, and and our, you know even when the Soviet Union became more bearable in the sense that it became only uh, very oppressive rather than murderous, um, um, it was very surprising that anything was produced. Talking about uh, the Soviet Union, one of the characteristics is um, the uh, the ugliness of the building, the architecture, yes. the uh, where people lived, and uh, unfortunately, uh, some of this has uh, been uh, transported by um, by capitalism in a way that they wanted to make cheap buildings and just do utilitarian buildings. and And I saw that when I um, I, I lived mostly in Scotland in UK. And uh, I'm sorry to say that a lot of the houses look like bomb shelters. They are just gray. They have small windows. There's nothing going. They yes, probably built in the 70s. Yes. But, but I, uh, well, there, I mean, there's a long, I'm very interested in that question. And there's a long history of it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it goes back to the modernism and the catastrophe of modernism uh, from just after the First World War. The First World War was responsible for a lot of terrible things, in my opinion. And people like Gropius and uh, and Le Corbusier, who Le Corbusier, who is responsible for for this kind of stuff, ultimately, um, uh, he was a fascist. He was a real. I mean, I'm, I don't mean fascist in the uh, metaphorical sense. I mean it in the literal sense. And uh, these were people who wanted all buildings in the whole world to be built in the same way. Hmm. And, uh, and uh, Le Corbusier, the, the plan voisin, he wanted to uh, knock down half of Paris and make it into some kind of Novosibirsk. And with his and what is tall, that? Novosibirsk, you know, the, the town in, in Siberia. A okay. city in Siberia. So he just he wanted to um, uh, to build just huge, identical towers. I mean, uh, now you would think that any person who even entertained such an idea would be immediately disqualified from ever building anything anywhere in the world. But right. far from that, he's come to dominate the world. Or his style has come to dominate the world, including uh, Glasgow, and and every virtually every place in Britain has been ruined aesthetically by these buildings. Practically everyone, and even now they're still they're, they're still at it. The, the the architects. I was with a friend in uh, Ljubljana um, like a week ago, the capital city of Slovenia, because that's where I am right now. Yes, and he was uh, he's a professor of architecture and he was showing me the uh, the difference between the classical building the secessionist 
and then you see the modern building and usually sometimes the modern building where it looks hideous sometimes it even has a hideous color in it, on it as well yeah. you know yeah. and it seems like the the classical buildings had everything the the color the design everything around the windows and um uh this friend wanted me to tell you i don't know if you're familiar with uh, christopher alexander's uh work yes uh, yeah, but um, there's apparently a um, a school uh, inspired by him in Italy called Building Beauty um, School yeah. of Architecture, that's that's attempting to bring I guess um, beauty in in architecture again, which I think is uh, is needed because because um, if we had more buildings like that, there's something about being surrounded by beauty uh, as compared to the buildings some some of the buildings you see in Britain are just uh, very sad. Yeah, well, um, uh, it's, uh, it's almost everywhere. I mean, the French modern architects are abominable, absolutely abominable. I don't know whether you... Did you see the Philharmonie in, uh, in Paris? I, I don't the know. The Philharmonic that. Hall? Probably not. I mean, if you haven't been there recently. Well, they spent hundreds of millions on it hundreds of millions, so you can't say it's because they haven't got any money. Mm. Uh, hundreds of It is, I mean, it, it's so awful that it makes you almost want to laugh. <laughs> and <laughs> you don't know whether to laugh or kill yourself. And, uh, <laughs> but the and, thing um, is, somebody must have thought, this is a good idea, we should do this. And you know, Well, it was, it was the most famous French architect, Jean Nouvel, who did it. And um, actually, if I were a very rich man, what I would like to do is to fund a very large prize for architectural students, uh, maybe $50,000 a year, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And I would give them a building, for example, the Centre Pompidou in Paris or the, the Philharmonie or many buildings in Britain. And I say, now, uh, you have to de design, you have 500 million euros or pounds or dollars or whatever, and you have to design something worse than this. Well, <laughs> why, why worse? Design something worse. <laughs> because that would take real imagination. Right? It, it, it wouldn't be easy. And, and the uh, prize, of course, would go to the person who managed to produce the ugliest, the worst building. And I think it would be a very good prize because it would make students of architecture think what is so terrible about these buildings. I thought you would say you build up something classic or something beautiful like the Louvre. No, no, no. The, or the Louvre without the pyramid and something like yeah. that, like really. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 you go, or you give them a, uh, you, you give them a city, shall we say, Venice and say, ruin it with one building. <laughs> that seems a bit counterproductive <laughs> well i think it would be i mean i'm not suggesting what that what they design should actually be built i'm only suggesting that they they should try because this will tell them actually much more than trying to build something beautiful it would be a, a kind of paradoxical uh, paradoxical intention so you, you, maybe they would stumble upon beauty by by seeking for uh, for ugliness. By, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe uh, maybe this school building, uh, like building beauty at school, would uh, would have some students that would be probably eager to design a building that they think is beautiful. Uh, yes. Well, anyway. <laughs>
The fact, the fact is, however, I mean, it's, it, it is very serious because our architectural schools, I understand, I'm not an expert on them, but I know people who know them. They are completely indifferent to what the vast majority of people would consider beauty. They, they, and, and actually, if you look at architectural criticism, modern architectural criticism, very rarely does it have anything directly uh, aesthetic in it. They say it's interesting. This is an interesting solution to that problem or whatever, but it won't actually say this is beautiful and we, and we just like just looking at it. They won't say that. Mm. Um, so uh, there's, there's a, and uh, it's not just architecture, it's also art. The other day, I, uh, because I, I write a little column called Philistine's Corner in, um, in an art magazine, um, I looked at the director of the Tate Gallery in Britain talking uh, with, with somebody else, some sort of 700th rate artist. Uh, and she was introduced, they were introduced by some other important person in the Tate Gallery who was talking about the kind of art that we should be supporting uh, with public funds and so on. Mm -hmm. And it should be challenging and it should be transgressive and so on. Never once was any aesthetic quality mentioned in what the art should be. Not once. It was simply not part of his worldview, if you like. Right. So they do. They make whatever they want. They they think is beautiful, and the the they don't think it's beautiful. Oh they well. Don't think it's, well, the, they don't. They they, well, at least art. they don't say. They don't say it's beautiful. They don't claim. They don't make right. a claim for beauty. It's just that they don't think beauty is very important, and they think that. I suppose they believe that most people's view of beauty is chocolate box, is kitsch. And of course, it's true that a lot of people do have a taste for kitsch. <laughs> That's true. But, uh, but it's, uh, if you look at great art of the past, it's possible to depict things which in themselves are extremely ugly but with great aesthetic sensitivity. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned before um, the groups of the Sikhs and the Jews in Britain that are doing well. There was a book um, written by an author that wrote, um, uh, she, she was called Tiger Mother. I'm, I don't know her name right now. Yes, I know. Uh, yes, I, 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 I've actually yes. spoken on a platform with her, yes. You have, okay. Um, so yeah. she, uh, she wrote an interesting book about groups in the US that do well. And there was a couple of groups and there were Jews as well, but there were Mormons and Nigerians and some other groups. There were about five or six uh, different groups, but it seems to me most of them are, are connected to a religion. And um, it seems to me that Britain and all across actually the Western world, America is an exception because I think it is more religious still than compared to, especially yeah. Scotland. Although it's or, religion yeah. is a very it's very peculiar it's religion is very 
peculiar. But anyway, yes. Right. So um, do you think that has something to do as well? The loss of religion since uh, the 1950s and 60s in Britain, maybe that has something to do with that as well. It's been going on, yes, it's been going on for longer than that because uh, Matthew Arnold spoke in the 1840s of the long melancholy withdrawing roar of, of religion even in the 1840s. Um, and I, it certainly got some connection, for example, with the um, with loss of beauty in architecture, because we no longer have any idea of building anything for eternity. Uh, I mean, uh, we don't build for eternity. We build for 30 years, and then we knock it down again and start again. And in fact, the building regulations are that a building should be able to stand up for 30 years. Well, you can't, you can, can you imagine telling Michelangelo, well, what we want is something that lasts for 30 years. <laughs> and then we'll just run it down. On <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the great so, cathedrals, sometimes it takes more than 30 years to even build the, the cathedral. You know, well, right? it took hundreds of years in some <laughs> cases, yeah. Yes. So, uh, but uh, on the other side, of course, it doesn't take long to ruin them. So, <laughs> you could, so we are capable of ruining anything almost instantaneously. Um, I, I want to go. So yes, to... I think. But I, I have to admit that I'm not at all religious. So, oh, know, okay. I'm not. I I'm not go... anti. I'm not anti-religious either. But uh, are you agnostic? Yes. Well, I'm not even, I wouldn't really uh, agnostic. Let's put it like this. I don't expect to survive my own death. <laughs> well, okay. Um, but what, what will happen to your surprise if you do and you're like, uh, realize, oh, this is... Uh, well, it, well there's something if, more. It depends where I go. I <laughs> it depends what I find when I get there. <laughs> I don't think you will go to a bad place based on your... Um, well, you see, uh, it's it's uh, to me. Uh, I'm see, I'm a, I'm a, I have a Catholic, uh, well, Christian background, and uh, but I've been to, into other some other stuff before, and it seems to me that um, it is not just a belief system, and this is uh, this would be heresy to some Christians to say, but uh, it seems to me that it's not just the belief system itself; it's the um, <clears throat> the character of the person, the character of the soul, and all that, and. If if a person I think honestly believes that there is something nothing doesn't doesn't believe um, you don't have to I don't think he he can believe like Carl Jung said I don't believe in things just for the sake of believing it but Carl Jung had a distinct uh, uh, I think uh, privilege to having a kind of experienced the presence of God in his autobiography he talks about mm. that so he had a different experience so he didn't have to believe because he he knew he was you know so mm. um so yeah that's my uh anyway i just wanted to throw that in there um uh i want to talk about because uh, you went to north korea apparently for a little bit right uh yes under strange circumstances <laughs> Uh, so, because uh, a lot of people in the West, they're very, um, they say the, the the Western culture is so bad, so terrible. And I always joke, you know, they should send them to a holiday, to uh, to holiday, to a working camp, maybe <laughs> for for a week or a month or whatever. So they experience, uh, you know, the same meal every day, no television or one television that you don't understand the Korean anyway. 
and just the strictness, everybody's same hairstyle, no books. Um, so, cause you experienced there, I think uh, in one of the books you mentioned that somebody had somehow discovered Shakespeare and he, he read that with great gusto and he was like, Oh, this is, this was, uh, he was well, yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. It was in Pyongyang and this was 1989. And uh, I came out of the great people's study house. Uh, Pyongyang is an extraordinary city because it's f huge open spaces and no traffic. So you have 13 lane roads, but no cars. And, uh, or you did then, I don't, I don't know what it's like now. I can't imagine it's changed very much. Um, and as Kustin says in his book, uh, Russia in 1839, uh, he says this at Petersburg, uh, a crowd would be a revolution. That is to say, if uh, if people gathered spontaneously rather than under direction, this would be the end of the regime. And um, but anyway, so I came out of this huge space uh, out of the Great People's Study House, which was a bit like a uh, like a, um, a fascist mausoleum mixed with a pagoda, and um, and as I walked across. Uh, incidentally, there was no contact, no spontaneous contact possible with North Koreans. That's impossible. Except on this one occasion, this chap crossed me. And as we walked past, we were the only ones in this huge open space. He said, do you speak English? So I said, yes. And he said, I am a student of the Foreign Languages Institute. And uh, the one thing communists did very, very well is teach foreign languages to uh, in the foreign language institutes. They really did do it very, very well. And he said to me, uh, reading Dickens and Shakespeare is the only, is the greatest, the only joy of my life, which was an extraordinary thing to say. And it was obvious to me that what he meant by it was that in these in both in Dickens and in Shakespeare, people, however poor they were, however downtrodden, they spoke with their own voice. They were free to speak with their own voice. And whatever the terrible qualities of their life in other respects. And that was impossible in North Korea. You had to repeat what you were told. You had to, you had to, um, re uh, had to read the same things and so on and so forth. And he was reading Dickens and Shakespeare, uh, partly because I suppose his teachers thought that this showed how terrible life outside North Korea was, but also to, to teach them extremely uh, good English. I mean, to think of someone mastering English in Korea to the point where he could read Shakespeare is astonishing. But anyway, that's what he said. Mm. And then he asked, he said, uh, I was there for a festival of youth and international festival of youth and students, which was a kind of communist jamboree, which was held every four years in one capital or the other. And this was the last one that was ever held. And it was in Pyongyang. And uh, it caused a famine in the country because they had to feed all the students and there was no surplus food. So we were eating. Uh, the food of the people, really. Anyway, he said, 
would it be correct English, he said, to uh, say that this festival is as welcome as the snow before the harvest? And, and uh, I, said, uh, I said, well, you would know better than I. And then we, that was the end of the conversation. No other conversation was possible. And he, could, he obviously couldn't be seen talking to me for any length of time. Or he would be possibly executed yeah, yeah. as a traitor. He, even this was probably dangerous for him. But anyway, I thought it, it was possibly the most extraordinary conversation I've ever had in my life. Wow. Because, of course, because just in a, I mean, he was obviously a very clever chap. Um, because in two sentences, three sentences, he illuminated everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, the being pithy and being concise with your ideas shows clear thinking. Um, uh, yes, uh, I mean, uh, in the, in this case, he uh, well, dare I say it, he found someone who understood what he meant. Um, at least I think he did. Do you, do you know? Uh, I mean, I wonder what ha this is now thirty thirty one years ago. So I wonder what happened to that chap. But was he young? Yes, yeah, yeah, he was young. He was, he was, um, yeah, he was young. He's probably still alive then. Was you know, um, probably. Well, cherished. other things being <laughs> other things being equal. <laughs> yes. Are you familiar with the work of uh, Eric Hoffer? Uh, I did read a, I, I did read a book of his once, but I, I'm afraid it's uh, it's rather uh, past my we talked about intellectuals and um, Eric Hoffer is one of my uh, favorite philosophers. And he said um, in one of the interviews he had, he, he had a very interesting quote and I'm interested what, what you have to say about it. He said, it's disconcerting to realize that businessmen, generals and soldiers and men of action are less corrupted by power than intellectuals. You take a conventional man of action and he satisfies you bay but not the intellectual. He doesn't want you just to obey. He wants to get down on your knees and praise the one that makes you love what you hate and hate what you love. In other words, wherever the intellectuals are in power, there's soul raping going on. So do you think that is, uh, that is true in some sense, especially in North Korea, that's a classic example of uh, uh, yes, I mean, it's not 100% true, because if you take um, uh, in a different society, uh, you'd have to say that someone like Gladstone uh, in this country uh, was an intellectual and also, I suppose, Disraeli. If you, if you count a novelist uh, as an intellectual, then he was an intellectual. And yet they... <clears throat> Uh, I don't think you could, uh, you couldn't call them totalitarians. Right. Uh, I, th I think it depends how much power they have. Because in communist country, obviously Lenin, when he was intellectual, yes. he took it over. Then, uh, then seems like power corrupted him a lot more than maybe um, a conventional man of action. I think. Uh, I think he was uh, deeply corrupt uh, before. I mean, okay. uh, morally, okay. uh, he was morally corrupt. I mean, uh, uh, so I don't, I don't think power corrupted him. Uh, he, he wanted the power because he was so corrupt. 
I mean, uh, morally corrupt. Okay, uh, okay. That that seems that seems fair. Um, uh, I, I don't mean he was. Yeah. I I want to touch on also uh, schools in uh, UK. I noticed a very left leaning as well. I had uh, one of my professors we talked before was um, openly a Marxist. Um, very young, but uh, I'm not going to mention names. But you know who you are. <laughs> openly a Marxist. If he's I, watching. If he's watching. Oh, I, I assume he he might be one one of these days, and uh, so what is it about the the <clears throat> education system in Britain and also in the United States to a large extent that um, a lot of education seems to be so left leaning. Uh, well, you uh, are you asking me why that is? Did you yes, was well, that? Yeah, why do you think that is so? Uh, I suppose it's because they assume, it's long been assumed, uh, that the left is virtuous because it says it is. That's not enough. Um, (laughs) That's not enough. (laughs) Well, it isn't enough. I mean, uh, uh, people talk about the long march through the institutions. uh, And that has happened. I mean, I... I take the example of um, there was a dispute between Isaiah Berlin and um, and Isaac Deutscher. Isaiah Berlin, you know about Isaiah Berlin. Do you know about Isaiah Berlin? I'm afraid not. Can you illuminate? Well, he was a, a famous intellectual historian and uh, political philosopher whose background was he was Jewish, but he was uh, of the uh, high merchant class of St. Petersburg. And he left, he left Russia because of the revolution when he was very young. And more or less, I mean, he was very clever, obviously. And um, he, he entered the British establishment, in, uh, university establishment, and also political establishment very easily without any difficulty at all. And he was a very good writer, and he was amusing, and in many ways a brilliant man. And he was an old-fashioned liberal. I mean, he genuinely believed that there should be differences of opinion in universities, and that people should be able to talk to one another. Uh, Isaac Deutscher was a of Polish origin, Polish-Jewish origin, who came from a much lower social uh, class, but was also extremely clever as anybody must who writes extremely good English, must be who writes extremely good English when it's his fourth or fifth language. I mean, this is, this is uh, astonishing to me. Anyway, Deutscher was a Marxist and uh, wrote a three-volume hagiography of Trotsky, which Deutscher thought, uh, uh, Berlin thought was dishonest. And he thought, Deutscher was a very dishonest and dangerous man, and therefore uh, prevented him from finding any um, any uh, academic employment in Britain. Mm. And he was so powerful and influential that he was at the time. I don't know whether whether anybody could do that now, but he did it. And um, and he said that I didn't do it because he was a Marxist. I'm quite happy to have Marxists in, in universities, but I won't have someone as dishonest as, as Deutsche. Now, the point about this story is 
that a genuine liberal like um, uh, Berlin was happy to have Marxists in, in department. And he thought the Marxists would reciprocate the liberality, uh, but that was not their idea. And so by degrees, we've had an in increasing uh, uniform, uniformly um, left-wing view of the world to such an extent that if now you apply to a university, uh, it's quite likely that you will be asked what you are going, what you are going to do uh, for uh, for diversity and inclusion in the university, meaning uniformity, of course. Di you, diversity you mean, means you. You mean as a professor, if you apply for a university? Yes, if you okay. apply for a position in the university. I don't now. I don't know enough to know how widespread that is, but it's certainly quite widespread, not just in Britain, uh, but in the United States where it's almost universal, and also in uh, European countries. My reply to that would be, well, how are we going to bring intellectual diversity to the, to the campus? And that, that would uh, destroy the whole entire thing. <laughs> well, that, uh, <laughs> that is a very good question, and I have no answer to it. Um, the last thing I want to go over is uh, Brexit. And Brexit is a huge uh, controversial thing that, well, kind of controversial thing that happened. And I found through my research that, um, not surprisingly, that about more than 90% of professors in UK um, voted to remain, uh, yes. voted against Brexit. Um, is that uh, of all, all subjects or... Uh... Yes. I'm thinking the the higher like I think it's um, I think it's the higher educate like a university level kind of um, yes, yes, education, yes, yes. and that's yes. not surprising because it's just uh, like we we said before it's very left wing but uh, it seems um, they are uniformly against Brexit. But what do you think of um, personally? What do you think Brexit is going to bring to United Kingdom? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, the fact is, of course, that our uh, our governing class and our um, our um, uh, bureaucracy is at least as bad as any in Europe. So, uh, and this has been revealed uh, recently, uh, very clearly. Uh, it seems to me, or it seemed to me, from the very beginning that um, the negotiations were bound to be very difficult. In fact, as Verufakis said, they shouldn't have even, they shouldn't have even started negotiations if they wanted to get out of the European Union. They should just have said, we've left and that's it. And then you start negotiating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's obvious that for both sides, it's an, exist a very, it's an existential question because if it, if uh, Brexit is not a disaster for Britain, even if it just things continue more or less as they were, this is a disaster for the European Union. Because if it's not a disaster for Britain, what is the European Union for? Um, so it was obvious from the very beginning, except to people of people like Mrs. May. Uh, that um, uh, that 
it was essential for the European Union to make things as difficult and as bad for Britain as possible. Well, this is, um, I think if, if Trump was negotiating, because something, there's something I like about the, um, the art of the deal that I read is, um, I think that's where it says that um, one of the strongest negotiating position is if you have the power to walk away at any time, and, but the UK never is in that position. It's always like begging, like we want to be here, we want to negotiate. Yeah. And uh, there has, that's coming from a power of weakness. Position yes, of weakness, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, I mean, whether it was intrinsically weak or whether it was weak because the people in charge were so weak are weak. And after all, you have to remember that most of the people who are negotiating don't actually believe what they're negotiating for. Most of the, <laughs> most of the bureaucracy was like your professors was against it in the first place. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, that's doomed from the start. You have to get, uh, so it's doomed from the start, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there were always arguments for and against. The arguments for were never really economic because, uh, I mean, I don't want to sound alarmist, but what we are building, what Europe is building, what we are building in Europe is another Yugoslavia, but on a much bigger scale. How, what do you mean but that it's another Yugoslavia? Well, they're going. They're going to have rotating presidencies, and and they're going to force these countries together into a union, which eventually will break apart. I hope not violently, because the interests of the various parts of it are so diverse. Mm -hmm. You know, the interests of Portugal are not the same as the interests of Germany, and the interests of Germany are not the same as those of of um, Greece and or Estonia and Italy. Yeah, I think Thomas Sowell shares your skepticism about the uh, e cohesion of the European Union in the long term. And uh, in the long term, it, I, it'll keep they can keep it going for quite a long time as Yugoslavia was kept going under Marshal Tito. Uh, well, but that was also a little force as well. A little camp here and there. Some people disappeared. Um, that that was a little force. European Union cannot afford to be the same because because otherwise, in the day of age of social media, I think um, I think it wouldn't last that long if they started on that route. But but who knows? Who knows? No, who knows? No, so, I'm not suggesting. I'm not suggesting that they would. But all I'm suggesting is that when you force countries together, which are very different, don't speak each other's languages, and have very different cultures, and so on, and eventually, uh, I mean, the the aim is supposedly the ever closer union. Well, I mean, what does the ever closer union mean? It can only mean in the end that very similar conditions are forced on very different countries everybody so, speak german maybe that <laughs> no I'm what I'm, I, yes. I, I, I said yes. everybody speak german no i'm kidding <laughs> yeah. no i'm afraid everyone will speak a version of english which will be worse <laughs> <laughs> well uh, i want to i think we've come to an end here uh, I, I, actually would you want uh, a uh, quick comment on Donald Trump. What do you think? Uh, how how do you think his uh, his three years are going so far? Uh, 
of war? Well, I always thought, I mean, um, there's a difference between what he's actually done and what the man is. I mean, uh, of course. To me, the man is utterly repellent. I mean, I, you know, he's, uh, he has, I can't think of any virtues that he has, but I can think of many vices. Um, on the other hand, if you didn't know who it was who had ruled America and said, well, has he done a good job or a bad job? You would say, well, he's done a good job in some respects and maybe he's a bad job in other respects, like any other, like, like any other political figure. And the problem with him is he is so revolting that uh, people who are opposed to him can't think of anything except his vices. And so, uh, um, uh, so the criticisms of him are usually, um, you know, um, beyond reason, Pers personal like attacks. But, but I yes, but I always thought that in the end he is going to reinforce the very tendencies that he's supposed to be against. Because in politics, there's always, well, at least if there's any freedom, uh, there's always a reaction against something, and when the reaction comes against him. And after all, the demography really is probably against him. Uh, it will be terrible. Um, well, the uh, the Black Lives Matter and all that is very uh, radicalized. The Marxist, the organization of Black Lives Matter is yeah. Marxist, and it seems to come into head. But I, I got a sense when he first got elected that I thought it was this is the beginning of the long road of ending of political correctness, meaning that no, it will I take. I think it'll be the reinforcement of political correctness. Okay. We'll because, see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I hope you're right. But, I mean, the, the problem is that you've, you've already mentioned that the discourse has become extremely vulgar and, yes. um, and so on. And... Um, and as I said, when the other side gets its chance, as it will, one day, I mean, maybe not this time, I, I actually expect Donald Trump to win the election. Same. Uh, um, but, uh, but again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not very good at predicting these things, so I might be completely wrong. But, um, but at some time, there's going to be a reaction against him. And people are so, uh, in the United States, seem to be so incapable of being in the same room together if they're of different opinions, uh, that when the reaction comes, it's likely to be a very strong one. Well, but one thing that's happens, I don't know if you know, a walkaway movement there, there's, there's a thing called hashtag walkaway that many people are walking away from the Democratic Party. So because precisely in the last, uh, particularly in the past two years, because they see the behavior of the left and uh, some of the things that they're doing are so radical that some people are like, wait a minute, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And then once they start free thinking and once they start researching from themselves, then it's over. That's the beginning of the end. And they're like, and then uh, in about six months, they're like, uh, they come out with a video, I'm walking away from the Democratic Party. And if they're black, they say plantation. So, 
So, so and ha and uh, but, but what kind of figures are these or percentages? Do you know? Or, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I imagine if because for one person that does the video, there must be there must be ten videos that don't that there must be tens of people or a hundred people that don't make the video because they don't want to be you know public. Yeah. Uh, so I do believe there is a movement, and uh, this this kind of radicalization actually helps. Um, it in a way because things always uh, my prediction is things will get worse before they get better but they need to get worse because they need we need to see what the what is the marxism really look like and it looks like uh you know i don't know if you saw this in seattle a couple months ago they took over uh yes, yeah the, that's yeah. what it looks like that's what it looks like they have their own police uh, politically, they don't believe in the borders with Mexico, but the, that place in Seattle had its own police and its own borders. So, you know, <laughs> it's yes. ridiculousness. Yes. Yeah. Well, well I mean, uh, you might be right. Um, but uh, it depends whether the, uh, the, um, the, Democrat, the, the radical Democrats can build a coalition of sufficient size that it uh, uh, that it can win elections. After all, the, the Social Democrats in um, in Sweden said we only need fifty one percent of the population and we're in power for good because what we'll do is create our own interest groups. So, I, you know, who knows? Who knows? I, I think if uh, if uh, if they can have a few more good riots, uh, you know, and uh, uh, <laughs> a few more incidents like the one was it yesterday or the day before, where someone goes and kills two or shoots at two policemen in a car, uh, then I think Trump will will win. Who uh, wait? Who shot the policeman and uh, one of someone? Well, there was a there was a video of a. A young person going up to a police car which was just by the side of the road with two policemen in it and uh, he shot them through the window and oh, then ran God. away I think I um, saw it but I didn't believe it. I thought he was I thought he was pointing and then and joking but I, I guess well, no no yeah, no he wasn't joking he actually shot them and uh, they were injured and then there was a demonstration out, a small one, outside the hospital where the policeman or policeman and a policewoman had been taken, uh, where they were, they were, they were want, they were saying that they wanted them to die and that the, that the police were uh, the biggest gang in, uh, the biggest gang or most dangerous gang of all. Now we just need a, you know, a few more incidents like that. And I think uh, uh, Donald Trump will, will win easily. Um, but, um, but who knows, I'm not a prophet. Okay, well, um, on that note, we shall end this uh, podcast. I wanna thank you very much for being here. I think it was um, a very good experience and I hopefully, um, you know, you promote your work as well because I think more people need to um, uh, see your work and uh, watch your lectures and talks and because uh, you pro provide an insight because you, you're not you said you're intellectual but I I would say because of your clinical background your end product was isn't solely ideas 
because you, you saw the, as a doctor, you were pragmatically working with people. So your end product was never just ideas because you were a clinical doctor and psychiatrist. So yeah, just want to thank you very much for being on the program. Well, thank you for asking me. And everybody, thank you for watching and listening.